Do you know me? Do you know me? Some of you know me pretty well. Some of you know me a little bit. Some of you don't know me at all. You might know some things about me, but you don't know me. Some of you would like to know me. And there are some of you who would like to forget that you know me. (laughs) To know someone requires more than just knowing things about them. We need to have a relationship with this other person. We need to connect with the other person on a deeper level than just acquiring facts and information about that person. And the same is true with knowing God. Knowing things about God is not the same as knowing God. Knowing God requires a personal relationship with God. We're going to come back to that idea a little later today. We're beginning a new Bible study today through a new book in the Bible. We are looking at the letter of 2 Peter today. So if you have your Bible, flip over to the letter or the book of 2 Peter, 2 Peter. We just finished a study through the letter of 1 Peter, and it seemed to make sense that we would follow up that with a letter or with a study of Peter's second letter, 2 Peter. So beginning in the first verse of chapter 1 of 2 Peter, it says, Simon Peter, a servant and apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who, through the righteousness of our God and Savior Jesus Christ, have received a faith as precious as ours, grace and peace be yours in abundance through the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. Some of the background information for the letter of 2 Peter is the same as the information for the letter of 1 Peter. But for the benefit of people who were not with us a few months ago when we talked about these introductory things when we started our study of 1 Peter, and for the benefit of the forgetful memories among us, mine as one of them, we're going to go ahead and cover some of this same stuff again. So you might go, I remember hearing about that a few months ago. That's good. You remember. One of the few of us who remembered that stuff, see? And for the rest, you go, oh. I didn't know that before. So here we go. But as, you, as we have noted before, the typical format of a letter in the first century was different from the format that we use in our own day for a letter. Letters in our own day begin with greeting the one the letter is written to, like Dear Aunt Gertrude. And then the letter ends with a closing from the one who wrote the letter. Affectionately, your favorite nephew, Horace. Letters in the first century usually began with the writer of the letter identifying themselves, and then a greeting was given to the one the letter was written to, and this is the format that 2 Peter follows. So who wrote the letter of 1 Peter? Well, the author identifies himself here in the very first words of the letter as Simon Peter. Simon was his given Jewish name. Peter is the Greek version of the name given to him by Jesus. Jesus gave him the name Cephas, and Peter is the Greek version of that name, and the one that we are most familiar with, this particular individual, is by the name of Peter. Well, who is Peter? When we first encounter Peter in the Bible, he is a professional fisherman. Peter and his brother Andrew were business partners with Two other men who also happened to be brothers, James and John. 
these four men all became followers of Jesus and were among his first 12 original disciples. Peter was one of the first people called by Jesus to follow him and become his disciple. In Matthew chapter 4, verse 18 is one of the places where it tells this story. It says, as Peter was walking beside the Sea of Galilee, I mean, as Jesus was walking beside the Sea of Galilee, he saw two brothers, Simon, called Peter, and his brother Andrew. They were casting a net into the lake, for they were fishermen. Come, follow me, Jesus said, and I will send you out to fish for people. At once they left their nets and followed him. Going on from there, he saw two other brothers, James, son of Zebedee, and his brother John. They were in a boat with their father Zebedee, preparing their nets. Jesus called them, and immediately they left the boat and their father and followed him. So all the stuff I told you, we see that it was written right there, so I, you know I didn't make it up. Peter became the leader and spokesman of the early disciples of Jesus. You might remember in the Gospels seeing this. Peter is the one who would ask Jesus the questions that they were all wanting to ask, but were afraid to ask. Peter was the one who would make the bold proclamations that they were all wanting to make, but were afraid to do it. Peter was the one of the three was one of the three people among this original 12 that were in this special, closer inner circle of trusted friends of Jesus, which also included James and John. Well, during those early years spent with Jesus, Peter is known more for his goofs and his foibles and his failures than he is for his successes. You might remember his foibles, though, are what make Peter so endearing to many of us. Not that we like to see people fail or make a fool of themselves, although we do on YouTube like to see that happen. But it's nice for us to know that someone so close to Jesus, like Peter, is used in such important ways by Jesus, and he's such a normal kind of guy, like us. Now, to be fair, Peter, he also had his moments of brilliance and spiritual insight. Like the time Jesus asked him who he believed Jesus was, and Peter said in Matthew 16, 16, you are the Messiah, the Son of the living God. Well, after the death, resurrection, and ascension of Jesus, Peter, he played an important role in the development of the early church. In a very real sense, he was the first voice of the church. He preached the very first sermon for the church about Jesus in Acts chapter 2. Peter's also the person who broke important new ground in the spreading of the gospel of Jesus Christ when he entered the house of the Gentile man Cornelius in Acts chapter 10 and he told him and the people who were gathered there at the house about Jesus being the Christ. You might remember that Cornelius and those there, they believed and they put their faith in Jesus as Messiah and the Lord baptized them with the Holy Spirit in that very moment. And they were then baptized with water by Peter. Well, from that time on, all people, whether Jewish or Gentile, would be offered salvation through Jesus Christ. Peter and Paul are the major human characters in the book of Acts. The first 12 chapters of the book of Acts are really focused on the ministry of Peter for the most part. 
And the last 16 chapters of the book of Acts are focused on the ministry of Paul. Well, after Peter identifies himself as the writer of the letter, he lists his qualifications or credentials. A servant and apostle of Jesus Christ. He's a servant, or more literally, a slave of Jesus Christ. He belongs to Jesus Christ. That's who owns him and who he's bound to give his life service to. And you know, this is true of every follower of Jesus Christ. Every Christian, we are servants of Jesus Christ. We are owned by him. He's our master. We're to serve him with our life. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, 19, it says, Do you not know that your bodies are temples of the Holy Spirit, who is in you, whom you have received from God? You are not your own. You were bought at a price. Therefore, honor God with your bodies. We're obligated to the one who has saved us, who has rescued us, who has freed us, who has forgiven us, who has redeemed us. Christian, think about the implications of that idea that you are not your own. You've been bought. You are a servant of Jesus. He's your master. Do we see ourselves that way? Do we live our life that way? These are interesting and challenging questions to ask ourselves, aren't they? Especially in our culture where personal independence is valued so highly. Another aspect of this idea of Peter calling himself a servant of Jesus that I want us to consider is the radical difference here in how authority is seen and carried out in the kingdom of God versus the culture that we live in. Peter is one of the most important and powerful leaders in the church. And how does he refer to himself? Big shot? No. How does he see himself? As a servant, one who serves. I'm a servant of Jesus Christ. Mark 10, 42, Jesus, he taught his disciples. He called them together and he said this. He says, you know that those who are regarded as rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their high officials exercise authority over them. Not so with you. Instead, whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant, and whoever wants to be first must be slave of all. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give His life as a ransom for many. When we are focused on positions and titles in the church, we're following the ways of secular culture rather than Jesus. When we are looking to climb the ladder in the church, we're following the ways of the secular culture around us rather than Jesus. When we are looking to get in the front of everybody, we're looking we're following the ways of the secular culture around us rather than Jesus. Positions of leadership have been established in the church, and we should respect those positions. But the person in a position of leadership is to see it as a position of service to others and not a position of privileged advantage over others. We talked a little bit about this last time when we were looking at the last chapter of 1 Peter. It's really ugly 
when people in the church seek positions and titles, we're all just servants of Jesus and each other. Well, Peter, he says, he's a servant and he's also an apostle of Jesus Christ. That word apostle, it literally means one who is sent, a messenger. Now, the way the word apostle is being used here and in most other places in the New Testament, it refers to those few men in the early church who had been given special authority, ability, and mission by Jesus Christ himself for the leading and the developing of the church. Some have asked if there are apostles in the church today. And the answer to that is not in the same sense and type that Peter and John and Paul were apostles. People who may be called apostles today, they're apostles with a little a, rather than apostles with the big A. Well, who was the letter of 2 Peter originally written to? He says, to those who through the righteousness of our God and Savior Jesus Christ have received a faith as precious as ours. 2 Peter was written to the same people that Peter's first letter was written to. In 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 1, he writes as he says, This is now the second letter that I am writing to you, beloved. This first letter that he's talking about is what we call 1 Peter in our Bible. Both letters were addressed to the Christians living in the region known as Asia Minor, or what we know today as Turkey. 1 Peter 1.1 says, To God's elect exiles scattered throughout the provinces of Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. Peter was also in the same place when he's writing this second letter as he was when he wrote the first letter, which is in Rome. He was in Rome when he wrote this letter. Well, when did Peter write 2 Peter? After 1 Peter. How about that? Although there is no date given in the letter itself, Peter probably wrote the letter around 65 A.D. Shortly before he was killed during the great persecution of the church by Nero. Nero was the emperor of Rome, the Roman Empire, from 54 to 68 A.D. And he was known to be one of the most vile human beings who have ever lived. Through his underhanded dealings and treatment of people and his selfish extravagance and just general buffoonery, the Roman Empire was bankrupt and in severe financial crisis by the early 60s. Then in 64 AD, the great fires of Rome broke out, which decimated the city. Three of the 14 city districts were totally destroyed. Seven others were severely damaged. When it was all said and done, two-thirds of the city of Rome was damaged. Rumors began to spread that Nero had started the fires himself, perhaps as a 
failed attempt to force people out of their homes in certain select areas of the city to make room for planned expansion of his palace and other monuments to his greatness. But these fires that had been set quickly got out of control. Well, in an effort to divert suspicion away from himself, Nero, he claimed that the already unpopular Christians had been the ones who caused the fires and ordered that they pay for their awful crimes. And so began one of the most vicious periods of persecutions against Christians in history. According to the Roman historian Tacitus, large numbers of Christians were arrested charged and condemned for the crime of arson and for what they said, the hatred of the human race. I always find that ironic that they were charged with the crime of hatred of the human race when, in truth, the Christians' main tenet of their faith was to love people. Well, false rumors were spread about the Christians, intending to turn the general population against them even more. It was said, for example, that Christian baptism involved the drowning of babies. That communion was a cannibalistic feast where they ate these babies. The Christians were tortured and killed in ways intended to mock and humiliate and maximize their sufferings. Some were dressed in animal skins and then torn to pieces by wild dogs and other beasts for the entertainment of crowds. Some were crucified. Some were burned as human torches to light the streets of the city at night. The Romans were well known for their brutality and all of that creative cruelty that they brought against their enemies was brought to bear against the Christians in the city of Rome. It's believed the Apostle Peter and the Apostle Paul were both killed during this terrible period of persecution that took place under the leadership of Nero. Ancient church tradition says that Peter was crucified upside down at his own request because he didn't feel worthy to die in the same way that his Lord had died. Paul was beheaded. Well, why did Peter write this letter? What were the purposes for his writing of this letter? There were three main purposes that Peter had for writing this letter, which really formed the content of the letter's three chapters. First, the encourage, to encourage followers of Jesus Christ to grow spiritually and become more like Christ in character, chapter 1. Chapter 2 is to combat false teaching that was creeping into the church. And then third, which is chapter 3, to encourage the followers of Jesus to be watchful for Christ's return. Well, let's look again at how Peter describes the people he's writing to in the last part of verse 1. And if you are a follower of Jesus, this includes you. He says, To those who through the righteousness of our God and Savior Jesus Christ have received a faith as precious as ours. First, notice that Peter is saying the faith that we have in Christ is of the same quality and nature as the faith that Peter himself has. He says, a faith as precious as ours, or as the 
NES Bible says, of the same kind as ours, or as the ESV says, of equal standing with ours. Peter is pointing out that we are on an equal level with himself when it comes to access to God. This may be an idea that is familiar with many today, but it was and it still is a radical idea to consider that the priest and the layperson, the king and the slave, the rich and the poor, all have the same access to God in Christ. Galatians 3.28 says, There is neither Jew nor Gentile, neither slave nor free, nor is there male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. Religion often has a hierarchy of some kind with different people having different levels of access and privileges before God. And one of the very radical ideas that Christianity introduced was the idea that every human being can be a child of God having full access to the very throne of God through Jesus Christ. A personal relationship with God is possible for everyone through Jesus. It's sad that over the centuries, various flavors of Christianity have reintroduced hierarchies of access to God back into their religious practices. That's not the way that it was intended to be. That's not what the Bible teaches. Those are structures that human beings put back into place, into the church, and then, you know, we just love getting over on each other, so we just ran off going to town on that kind of thing. But that's not the way the Lord intended it to be. Every Christian has as much access to God as any other Christian. Priests and pastors and such folks don't have any more access to God than you do. Jesus Christ is our priest who gives us all the same access. There are no second-class citizens in the kingdom of God. And this truth is to impact our relationships with each other. No second-class citizens in the church. James, he talks about this quite a bit in his letter when he addresses the sin of favoritism inside the church. In James chapter 2, those first seven verses, we should not give the rich and the influential preferential treatment over the poor and the powerless, he says. Everyone should be treated the same. We're to treat everyone with the same dignity and be conscientious of the needs of everyone equally. The Lord does not show favoritism among us, and we're not to do it either. Well, second, look at how we have received this faith. It's through the righteousness of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. We've not earned this relationship with God through living an impeccably righteous life. Didn't get it that way. We've not worked up this faith through some kind of intense religious gyrations of some kind. It's been given to us. We have received it. Jesus has obtained it for us through His righteousness. He did it for us. Ephesians 2, 8 and 9, For it is by grace you've been saved through faith. 
And this is not from yourselves. It's the gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast. Well, what does all that mean for us in our day-to-day living in the now? Well, one thing it means is that we can come to God anytime and lay our heart out to Him, and He's available to us because we all have the same access to God. It means, too, that because we have received our faith and salvation through the righteousness of Jesus, we're able to truly live in peace and joy and freedom. See, the heavy burden of guilt has been taken away. The worrisome fear of judgment has been removed. The unsettling uncertainty of depending on our own performance has been replaced by the surety and the confidence of trusting in what Jesus has done for us. That is a precious truth that we need to take hold of. It means that because this faith and access to God has been given to us by the Lord Himself, that we can serve Him out of love and gratitude rather than fear. Taking all of this into consideration, we can see why Peter calls this faith precious, this precious faith. In his first letter, in chapter 1, verse 7, he says, it's of greater worth than gold, this faith that we have. Well, finally, before moving on to the second verse, look at how Peter refers to Jesus Christ. He refers to him as our God and Savior, Jesus Christ our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. This is a clear and unmistakable reference to the deity of Jesus. Jesus is more than a human. He's God wrapped in human flesh, making Him the perfect Savior for us. He possesses the power to do what no mere human being could have ever done for us. He was able to satisfy the justice of holy God by being the perfect, sinless sacrifice who willingly died for us He then resurrected on the third day to live forever as our intercessor now before God. And he he ensures our own resurrection because of his resurrection. And now the Holy Spirit is working in us to transform us into the likeness of Jesus Christ. Colossians 2.9, Paul said, For in Christ all the fullness of the deity lives in bodily form. All the fullness of the deity fullness of God lives in bodily form. You want to know what God looks like? It's Jesus. That's what God looks like. In the second verse, he says, grace and peace be yours in abundance through the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. Peter pronounces a blessing on his readers here. A blessing of grace and peace. And this grace and peace, it comes through or in or by the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord, he says. This knowledge of God and Jesus, it's more than a mere intellectual pursuit or gathering of information. We should certainly seek to increase what we know about God. But we don't want to stop with that. Simply knowing about God can't be the source of of grace and peace that Peter's talking about here, or the conduit through which God's divine power gives us everything 
pertaining to life and godliness is talked about in the next verse, which we'll look at next time. This knowledge being talked about is personal, it's intimate, it's relational, it involves both the head and the heart. If you've, ever, if you've ever read the King James Version of the Bible, you may have noticed that it uses the word know when referring to a man and woman having intimate relations with each other. For example, in Genesis 4.1 it says, Adam knew Eve, his wife, and she conceived and bare Cain. I point this out to help us see this fuller meaning of the word knowledge and knowing as it's being used by Peter here. It's not simply knowing about God. It is having a personal, intimate, relational knowledge of God. It is knowing God. Knowing God. Remember I said at the beginning, you can know about me. That's not the same as knowing me. And we can know about God, but that's certainly not the same as knowing God. And it's this knowing God that Peter's talking about. This knowledge, it comes by being in a relationship with God, giving our heart to Him, putting our trust in Him, living with Him, sharing life with Him, connecting with Him on the deepest level possible, emotionally, intellectually, spiritually. This kind of knowledge of God, this knowing God, this is the conduit for God's grace and peace and transforming power in our life. We're going to stop there today. We'll pick up next time in verse 3 where he uh, builds on this knowledge and uh, the way we acquire this life transformation. So in closing that, I ask you, do you know God? Do you know God? Jesus said in John 1.18, No one has ever seen God but the one and only Son who is Himself God and is in closest relationship with the Father, He has made Him known. Jesus has made God known, revealed Him, made Him knowable. He's made God knowable. If you want to know God, come to Jesus Christ. He is the one who has made God knowable. He has revealed God to us. He's made God accessible for us. We'll see next time that through knowing God, we're given everything we need for life and godliness. It's no wonder when we consider that that Paul said in Philippians 3.7, he said, whatever were gains to me, I now consider loss for the sake of Christ. What's more, I consider everything in my life a loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. He says, to know Christ is of so much greater value than anything else in my life that everything else is as nothing in comparison to it. For whose sake I have lost all things, I consider them garbage that I may gain Christ. In Colossians 2, 2 and 3, He said, Christ, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. My prayer for us is that we too would discover 
the truth of that, that in Christ are hidden all of the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. Let's bow our heads. Lord, I pray that you would make that so for each of us, that we would come to see and to value Jesus in this way, that in him are hidden all of the treasures of wisdom and knowledge, that to know you, Lord, in comparison, everything else in our life is as nothing in comparison to that. Lord, I pray that you would make that so in us, that we, we would see it and understand it that way, that you would help us to wrap our mind and our heart around that truth, Lord. Give us that kind of hunger for you. Make that so in us, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen.